Hello, and welcome to Banking Transformed. I'm your host, Jim Roos, owner and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The battle to become the primary financial relationship for consumers continues to intensify, with the lines blurring between traditional banks, digital banks, robo-advisors, and tech firms offering financial services. With the COVID-19 crisis driving consumers to digital banking options, the desire for new ways to bank became a necessity. Consumers are finding alternatives to the bank that has dozens or hundreds of branches. From low-cost options designed to replace check cashing facilities to more sophisticated options that are focused on investment accumulation, the marketplace is crowded. We are fortunate to have Andy Ratchliffe, co-founder and executive chairman of Wealthfront, on the show today. Along with Dan Carroll, Andy has built Wealthfront into one of the premier financial services organizations in the country, expanding from a foundation of a digital wealth management firm to providing high-interest digital checking and savings accounts as an option. Welcome to the show, Andy. Uh, One of the most significant changes to consumer behavior over the past six months was the shift to digital for almost every part of a consumer's life. While this shift was already occurring across industries, the move to digital became an imperative with lockdowns and social distancing. In no industry has this shift to digital been more disruptive than in banking, where most financial institutions have been dragging their feet in offering modern digital options to the branch-based model that existed for more than a century. Considered a disruptor in the financial services industry and founded in 2008, Wealthfront expanded from being a robo-advisor to offering checking account services as well as high-yield savings options, with all with FDIC insurance. Andy, can you discuss a bit about the origin of Wealthfront and the transformation of both your mission and the product offering through the years? Sure. Well, it happened by accident. So I was a career venture capitalist. I'd been in the business for almost 25 years. The last 10 years uh, was as a co-founder and partner of a firm called Benchmark Capital. And when I retired, I wanted to give back. So I decided to teach at my grad school alma mater, Stanford Graduate School of Business, where I've been teaching for 15 years now. I became a trustee at my undergrad alma mater at University of Pennsylvania. And my wife and I started an innovative cancer research funding initiative, which has gone quite well. One of my responsibilities as a Penn trustee was to sit on their endowment investment board. And the premier university endowments are probably the best managed pools of capital in the world. And they all do it the same way. And one of the things that I observed on this board was that much of what they do was manual. And I thought, God, if you just automated what they do, you could do an 80-20 on endowment investing and bring that to the masses. In other words, democratize access to the most sophisticated investing in the world. Now, this hit me because over my years as a venture capitalist, many of the people that I recruited in my portfolio companies would come to me for investment advice after they had made money through their company being acquired or having gone public. And I could never tell them to do what I do because they couldn't afford the minimums even with their success. And that always struck me as wrong. So when I observed this about endowment investing that you could do an 80-20, you could do something about 80% is good, but deliver it to the masses, I thought, I've got to do this. It's another social good, and that's what I was focusing my efforts on. So we got started in that, and then over time, we the vision for the company 
was built out and grew, and through that we transitioned into banking and are now doing very well there. And I can explain to you how the vision adapted over time. Yeah, so you and your partner, Dan, uh, both write quite a bit on your blog. And one of the recent blog posts talked about your mission to build a financial system that favors people, not institutions. That was kind of elaborated on based on what you did, the story you just told, but it, it even goes further when you're, when you're elaborating and, and looking at f- people versus institutions from the standpoint of against the banking industry. And you've also, you've both written about the fact that, you know, if you're banking with branches, it's not the best way to go. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Sure. Well, you know, everything that banks do reinforce their strength, which are branches. Banks are built around branches. And we did an analysis that showed that uh, the average branch costs the average customer on the order of $200 per year. Well, the question is, do you get $200 worth of value from going to those branches? Now, the audience that we target young professionals, or another way we refer to them as millennials who save, is that they don't want to go to a branch. That's the last thing that they want to do, and they get no value out of that. But a bank has to generate revenues to support that branch. And they do it through a lot of hidden fees that are really quite frustrating. Now, some of them are not so hidden, like account minimum fees and overdraft fees and things of that sort. But there are all these insidious fees that you don't see. As an example, when you get paid, what you don't realize is that there's a two-day lag between the time the employer deposits your paycheck and the time you get it. The banks make money on that float. They earn interest on the money for those two days every pay cycle. At Wealthfront, when you direct deposit with us, you get the money when the employer deposits the money. So you can get that money up to two days earlier. And given that people tend to get paid twice a month, that's uh, another 48 days of of interest that you're going to earn. Uh, Number two, when you use, uh, when you send checks via internet banking at many banks, they deduct the money from your account when you hit submit on sending the check, even though they don't send the check for another five or seven days. That's just criminal. I I just don't understand how they do it. And the last thing that that is criminal to me is that uh, during the financial crisis, banks lowered the interest rate that they pay on balances. And what they learned was that when they lowered the rate to zero, they didn't lose any customers. So when the rates went up, they didn't raise their rates. They kept the rates at zero. So that's your money that they're making money on and that you're not getting any part of that. So those are all examples of how the banks favor their shareholders and themselves. They don't favor people. Now, unless you build software, you can't uh, create a cost structure that allows you to share the economics with your customers so you make money with them, not from them. And that's what we're doing, is we're building delightful software that doesn't require any branches, doesn't require you to talk to any people, and we can share the economics so we can make money with you, not from you. We can favor people, not institutions. 
Well, it's interesting because Wealthfront, as well as many of the fintechs, really leverage the technology for a better customer experience, but also they obviously are eliminating a lot of the costs. You mentioned you're you're teaching at Stanford and, and the work with Penn. You've been quoted on the concept of product market fit and on the development of value proposition that exceeds market norms. And it's really been the foundation of all your innovation rather than just staying as a robo-advisor for a very general term. Can you describe a little bit about your product market fit philosophy? Sure. I'm a really big believer from observing tech companies over 38 years now that companies succeed and fail based on what I have labeled product market fit. If the dogs want to eat the dog food, you can screw up everything in your company and you will succeed. Conversely, you might be great at management and execution, but if people don't want to buy your product, you're going to fail. So all of those books that you read about, it's the quality of the entrepreneur that matters, I completely disagree with. It is how well the product fits the market, how badly the market wants your product. And so uh, as a result, we're riveted on testing whether or not people love what we do. We iterated on the original idea that we started with from the endowments to ultimately get to a diversified and rebalanced portfolio of low-cost index funds, which is where we started. By accident, we hit upon something called tax loss harvesting as an enhancement to it. The tax loss harvesting pays for the fee that we, the, the very modest fee of a quarter of a percent, which is a quarter of the industry average financial advisory fee. But our tax loss harvesting pays for that fee three to 13 times over each year. So that says that you get anywhere between three quarters of a percent to well over 2% of after-tax benefit just from using us. So it's almost an intelligence test should you invest passively in passive investments yourself or with us, uh, with our tax loss harvesting that you can't do, it's just too complex to not do in software. There's no reason you shouldn't do it with us. Now, what we learned over time was that our, our greatest areas of, an, of value through software were optimizing and automating what you do. And so what we said, our vision is to optimize and automate all of your finances, not just your investments. One of our smart engineers uh, made that pithier and said, we do self-driving money. Now, by that, what I mean is that we want to, uh, this year actually, we'll make it possible for you to direct deposit your paycheck with us. We'll automatically pay your bills and then route the remaining money to the most appropriate account depending on your situation and goals. So if you're saving for your kid's education, we'll route it to a 529 account, the, the most tax-advantaged way to save for that. If you have a lot of high-interest debt, we'll pay off your debt even before you, we invest it for you. So that's a, a feature that we call Autopilot that's currently in beta that will come out in September that automatically routes your money around and does it intelligently and very, very quickly. So over time, what we came to realize was that in order to deliver on this vision, we needed to have a cash account that would accept direct deposits and that would pay your bills and do all these things. And that's how we transitioned into banking. It was in order to enable our vision. So really, you're now offering a blended checking and savings account that also has an investment arm to it that 
as you mentioned, the next stage would be to have automatic deposits made. Is that going to be based on AI around where my normal deposits were versus where they are today? Or is that going to simply be a, an automatic transfer? You know, there's no AI required to do that. A lot of people overstate what artificial intelligence does. So what we do is you direct deposit your paycheck with us. Uh, we automatically pay the bill. That's really easy through auto pay. And then figuring out which account it should be routed to is a function of optimization versus artificial intelligence. Gotcha. That's very, very old technology and something very straightforward to implement in software. It's just none of the banks are good at doing that. Right. And they're so focused on the branch model and ATMs. You know, ATMs were an amazing innovation in the 70s. I remember uh, I went to college in 19, I started college in 1976, and we had an ATM on our campus, and it was like magic. You no longer had to go to a branch to withdraw money. Well, if you think about it, ATMs really haven't evolved all that much. The user interface has gotten nicer, but the functionality hasn't changed much. And the apps that banks give you today are really just ATMs in your hand. They don't do anything more than ATMs do. And think about the processing power in that device. That's thousands of times more powerful, millions of times more powerful than the mainframes on which ATMs were built. So just taking advantage of all that power in your palm, we can deliver so much more value and automate your life. So you can focus on the things that you enjoy uh, and not have to wor worry about your personal finances. It's funny because I was uh, getting into the world of banking while you're going, starting to go to college. So I was four years uh, ahead of you and uh, as far as timing. And uh, it was interesting because you're right. It's the beginning of the ATMs. The bank in that those previous notice bank ones did had the first ATMs and and since then yeah we've had debit cards we've had credit cards and and but you're right very little innovation that moved market share or, or was different to the consumer you know so when you're talking about differentiation how does Wealthfront differentiate or distinguish itself from competition such as Betterment Acorns Personal Capital and other firms that have somewhat similar value propositions. Number one, there's what they state and what they actually do. Right. Yep. Yep. <laughs> one, of the, one of the frustrating things to me about the, the fintech world is that reviews are done based on websites, not based on products. Yep. That in the technology world, people used to actually buy products to review them. But in our world, they review you based on what your website says, and everybody says they do the same things. They don't. So, for example, on the, uh, on the investment side, it's really, really easy. It's abs an absolute commodity to do a diversified portfolio of low-cost index funds. But tax loss harvesting, I think, is only done by three or four firms. And by the way, they're not all equal. We opened up accounts at the various firms to test them. And the best anyone else does relative to us is harvest 60% of the losses that we do. Now, that's just on ETF-level tax loss harvesting. We actually can harvest within an index. We call this stock-level tax loss harvesting. This is something that uh, wealthy people have had available to them for many years through a firm called a Perio or Parametric. We do that. No one else does that. No one else does multi-factor smart beta for free, again, because we do this in software. Nobody uh, enables you to transfer your existing securities 
to them and then tax efficiently transition them into your new portfolio. Those taxes really matter. So there's a radical difference in the quality of what we do on the investment side and what everybody else does. On the banking side, by the end of this quarter, no one will have more features than we do. So things like direct deposit and get paid two days early, pay your bills and your friends automatically. Uh, We enable you to use Venmo or your cash app in addition to paying your bills. We offer a debit card that allows you to make payments or to buy things and make withdrawals from ATMs. We have automatic check deposit, we have mobile check deposit, and we'll have the ability to send checks by early October. So those are sort of table stakes. But nobody else pays interest on your checking balance. You have to transfer the money into a savings account. Right now, we're paying 35 basis points on your checking balance. That's a really big deal. If you save money, why should you not earn any money on that balance? And then, as I said before, uh, on September 2nd, I think it is, we'll offer the beginnings of our self-driving money future, which nobody does. So the ability to automate the routing of your money and automate your finances is something that no one else has invested in. So when you work with us, you pay no more, you actually pay less, and you get a hell of a lot more value. So, you know, there's obviously benefits to scale. How do you get out in the marketplace from a marketing firm or from a perception basis to build scale in a marketplace that's so competitive where the difference between several hundred thousand accounts and several million accounts is a big deal? Big deal on what dimension, Jim? Well, from the standpoint of people wanting to open accounts with you through name recognition alone. And even when you're looking at the situation where obviously between the financial crisis now, from the most part, the market's gone positively. When the market, if the market turns, do people view an engagement with you as a, an investment or a checking account? And does that change from the perception of what the risk is or what the perception is? I, I guess part of the question is around brand recognition, how important that is, as well as the scalability issue. Well, look, I come on shows like this in order to increase our brand recognition, to increase awareness. Uh, Clearly, you always want more awareness, but we have built our business almost exclusively through word of mouth. If you think about the most successful tech companies, they've all built themselves that way, not through marketing. Uh, You never saw Facebook ads in their first 10 years. You didn't see Google ads. You didn't see Netflix ads. Tech companies build their businesses through word of mouth. Now, you can start to advertise later to enhance that. Our challenge is the downside of our mission of building a financial system that favors people, not institutions, is that because we share so much of the economics that we make with our customers, that advertising isn't as economic for us. So we win through delighting customers through product. That's what we're focused on. Over half of our employees are engineers. I challenge you to find any other fintech company like that. Most fintech companies are big, thin, little tech. They do a very thin layer of software on top of some other technology supplier and spend all their money on marketing. We're the opposite. We spend very little money on marketing and spend all our money on our product teams to deliver delightful products. 
Well, it's interesting. Like one of my questions I was going to ask it, and you've already answered is, do you consider yourself a tech company that offers financial services or a financial services company that has tech? And that's obviously, it's the former, not the latter. Obviously, it's the former. And by the way, that's really, really unusual. Oh, it is. Well, actually, I was fortunate enough in January, early January, to go to Shenzhen, China. And the visits that we had there, these companies are the best example of tech versus financial, that, that you, you visit WeBank, you visit Ping An, some of these other companies, and you really realize that the tech drives everything more than having just a good tech solution above the financial services. It also allows for inclusion because the ability to serve masses is made available because your costs are lower and because your ability to, to deal with the mass audience through technology is so much more efficient. You know, I asked you about scale before because we don't have the typical scale challenges that a, a physical infrastructure-based bank does. So let me give you an example of that. We actually wrote a blog post about our support team, which we call product specialists. They're very different than a traditional customer service person. So half of our product specialist's job is to answer technical support questions. And the other half is to figure out how to work themselves out of a job. So literally to figure out what is it that people are reaching out to us about so we can fix those issues so we don't get the emails and the calls. This has gotten to the point that we now have over 400,000 clients and we only have 12 product specialists. Hmm. And, and one could argue that we actually need fewer than 12. That's outrageous. Right. And by the way, if you tried calling us, you would get a, uh, one of our product specialists in less than 10 seconds. You don't have to go through the whole voicemail tree to get them. So we offer radically better service with a radically more scaled operation because we focus on getting rid of the problems, not throwing more people at it. Right. We have very little marginal expense as we scale. So obviously innovation is a key element of what you do because you've continually transformed your business model. How do you view innovation within your company and a quick innovation cycle where Product may not be perfect at the outset, but you obviously introduce a lot of innovation before your competitors. How do you view that within your company? Well, we're really big devotees of the Lean Startup methodology. The book, The Lean Startup, written by Eric Reese, has had a big influence on us. Uh, Eric is a constant guest of my product market fit class at Stanford. And it basically defines a methodology for coming up with product ideas, and then testing them through experimentation. So our view is that the ideas can come from anywhere in our company. Sometimes it's from feedback to our product specialists. Sometimes it's based on market research that we do. Sometimes it's a wacky idea that one of our engineers has, is something that you can do with technology that wasn't possible before. And then we set up an experiment to see whether or not there's any heat there. First, we test the concept. Then we test the implementation. We put out a minimum viable product. And we expect well less than a third of the products or features that we create to actually hit a nerve. And then we fail fast and cheap and move on and, and build other ones. But this idea that 
the majority of what you're going to build is not going to succeed is very uncomfortable for most people. And if you're going to work at Wealthfront, you have to embrace it. And fortunately, our people have. And we've been able to build many, many innovative features that people benefit greatly from. Well, and certainly that's another one of those big differentiations from the traditional bank. You know, you can get frustrated looking at the banking industry and what they talk about versus what they do and, you, and, and the logic of people sticking with organizations. And not, they're not all the same, but organizations that are not delivering their minimum needs. You know, when you, you look at the business today in a post-COVID environment, there's a lot of shift going on. Um, there's higher demands from the consumer for a digital engagement. There's also, for fintech firms, as we're seeing, it's a tough marketplace. A venture capital is not coming in as strong as it had in the past, that they're much more selective as to who they, they fund. There's cash flow issues. And that's even affecting what I'll call mid-cap traditional banks, where they need to make a decision if they can play the digital game to the level that the big boys can. How do you see this all shaking out in the short term and in the medium term future? Well, every single tech market has a shakeout. So it's really funny. People talk about how certain markets get overheated for for funding. Well, that's true of literally every single market. So there are always way too many companies that are funded. There's a shakeout and there are a few winners. So that's natural. That was true in disk drives. It was true in PCs. It was true in mainframes. It's true in literally every area of technology. FinTech is no different. I think that the, so I don't see that as a negative. I just see that as a normal course of evolution. I think with regard to the banks, they all face an innovator's dilemma. And that innovator's dilemma is if they move to the new model, they're going to make a lot less money. So that's really unattractive. But if they ignore it, then that leaves room for innovators like us to take share from them. So sort of they're damned if they do and they're damned if they don't. Now, the big four banks are going to be the big four banks for a long, long time in the retail area. That's Chase and Wells and B of A and and Citibank. But they rely on young people for their growth. Think about it. They have a a wide age range of customers from college-age kids to people in their 80s and 90s. Well, the people in their 80s and 90s are going to die, and they constantly need to refresh them with with college-age kids. And if people like us succeed, which I think is likely to happen because we better appeal to the young people who don't want to talk to someone, who expect everything to be done through their mobile phone, then that's not going to have an impact on them in the next two or three years, but it will in 10 or 15. Clay Christensen, who wrote the book called The Innovator's Dilemma, actually said one of the biggest misperceptions about true disruption, the disruption that he defined, is that it actually takes a long time. Now, people have come to think that if something is disruptive, everyone beats a path to its door. That's not the way disruption works. It's like boiling a frog. It it takes a while, and then all of a sudden the frog is dead. It's interesting because you you talk about the whole innovation concept and and the competition and everything else, and 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 you just feel that change, you know, we've just had a a radical shift in consumer behavior that we're not going to go back. But you still hear in the industry, the banking industry, people that say, when things get back to normal, you go, 
I hope that's not your strategy because, you know, it, the normal is going to be a whole lot different than what it was. And, and by the way, the change now, people are getting more and more used to quick change, be it good or bad. And that's going to be the, the go forward model. And you look at what's going on in the marketplace. And, you, and when you can look at your own competition, do you see your competition more being the banks because of their market share, more being the big tech firms because of just them being the big tech firms and they're, they're not trying to be banks, but they're building partnerships along the way, or other fintechs? It's the banks. Because that's where the money is. You know, why did Willie Sutton, <laughs> Willie Sutton was asked, why exactly. did Rob Banks? Because that's where the money is. Yeah. So uh, the money, you know, our clients, as I said before, we focus on young professionals. And they keep the vast majority of their money in banks. Now, young, it's funny, millennials are the largest generation in our nation's history I think there are approximately 90 million of them. They're currently aged 25 to 40, or millennials are currently aged 25 to 40, the group that we focus on. And according to Deloitte, they control about $4 trillion of assets. Well, in the next 10 years, Deloitte believes that that $4 trillion will grow to $12 trillion, not because they're going to inherit the money, but because they're in the wealth accumulation phase of their lives, 25 to 40, they're, and they're saving money. Now, every market has an 80-20 element to it. Pareto's law is just the most amazing natural law in the world, and that is that 20% of those 90 million millennials, I think, represent more than 80% of the assets. And so we think the millennials who save, the young professionals, probably are on the order of 18 or 20 million of the 90 million, but they probably represent 80% of that 12 trillion or almost you know, $10 trillion. That's our opportunity. And that money is all in banks. So competition doesn't matter. And, and the big tech companies, boy, the last thing they want to do is get into regulated businesses. Look at how they're squirming in front of Congress of late. Oh, yeah. So they do not want to be regulated in any way, shape, or form. So they might create marketplaces, as Google is trying to do in banking, but they don't want to offer their own services because the last thing they want is an excuse for the government to get into their business. And there's no reason to. You right. know, they, they understand the platform, the model of platforms, which is so much cleaner than trying to become a finance institution. Not, not the best business in the world. So what's this next stage of growth for Wealthfront? Where do you see your business going from a product standpoint or from a business standpoint overall? Well, from a product standpoint, you're going to see us add new checking account features every few weeks. Uh, that's the beauty of being a software-based business is you can roll out new services very, very quickly in contrast to a people-based business where you have to train people and that's very, very difficult. Uh, you're going to see us really step on the accelerator with regard to our self-driving money features. You're going to see more sources and destinations for your money, and you're going to see faster routing, actually routing of the sort that you've never seen before in terms of immediacy. But at the highest level, you know, given our mission of building a financial system that favors people, not institutions, we have to build software that delights. And it's only through software that you can lower the cost of delivering the service so that you can favor those people. And that's what you're going to see us do. And, and more and more, you're going to see us become the company that automates all your finances. 
We give you control. By the way, we're not trying to take control of your finances. We're trying to take what you do and just make it more convenient and more easy. How's the demographics of your your new checking account customer different than what was a pre-checking account scenario with? Exactly the same. Really? So you're you're looking at this as being an expansion of services within the robo-investing community, or the, as you said, the... No, it's on millennials who save. I mean, we've always targeted young people. Other people have gone very broad in who they've attempted to serve. We've been very narrowly focused on millennials who save from the beginning. Yeah, it's interesting because you're starting to see more differentiation between fintech offerings, you know, the, the difference between a current and a day versus a, a betterment or a wealth fronter. Look, take, for example, Chime, which yep. is a, a, channel, a neo bank that's done exceptionally well. Yeah. They really target people who are unbanked and people who are living paycheck to paycheck. Yep. They offer very different services. So the people that they're serving, their average balance is like $200. But for them, they're taking people away from the check cashing facilities, which is a great service Agreed. in the overall marketplace. It's a different model. It's a completely different model. From a consumer's perspective, it's solving a major problem in the marketplace, obviously. But for, you know, whereas they're going to add features like topping off your credit card if you can't afford credit, most of their right. customers don't, which is why they spend on debit cards. Uh, our customers, you know, don't use debit cards. It's sort of an intelligence test. If you can afford to pay your bills, you should put all of your bills on your travel rewards credit card to get the points right. and then pay the credit card off at the end of the month as you would a debit card. But you should never use a debit card unless that's the only thing you have available to them. So our customers want something different. They have balances, so having interest on their checking balance matters greatly. If your average balance is $2,200, getting interest on $200 is not worth anything. Routing money to the most appropriate account so that you maximize your savings, if you only have $200, doesn't do you any good and the likelihood that you have multiple accounts is very, very low. But right. for the millennial who saves, that's really important. So each of us uh, has to build features that focus on our target demographic. The challenge for the big banks is they're trying to serve everyone. And when you try to appeal to everyone, you appeal to no one. So. Given your demographic profile, will you ever get into the ability to uh, have crypto as an investment option? You know, today we avoid that because we think it's actually a really bad idea. You know, it's a speculation. It's not an investment. I think it's often characterized as an investment. You just did. But to me, the only way something can be an investment is if it has a cash flow because you can value that cash flow. Right. If something doesn't have a cash flow, it's a speculation. Why does gold have value? It's a shiny metal. It's all emotional. It's a speculation. Yeah. And so no high-quality investor I know owns gold because they don't speculate. Right. So we're not facilitating speculation at Wealthfront. You can go other places for that. And by the way, we'll route the money there if you want it to. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, let's take another problem. Uh, let's say mortgage financing. That will do. So 
high-end loans and and maybe even quick-turn loans, business loans, things of that nature as well? You know, today we offer a collateralized loan. We call it our portfolio line of credit. If you have invested at least $25,000 with us, you're automatically enrolled in our portfolio line of credit, which allows you to borrow up to 30% of your account value immediately. So literally, if you, let's say you have $30,000 and you want to borrow $5,000, you push one button, you write $5,000 and the money's in your bank the next day. And at interest rates of 26 to 3.4%, depending on the balance, not of the amount you borrowed, but how much you have invested. So we incent you to save as opposed to borrow more. In every case, we favor the person, not the institution. So it's the fastest, easiest, and cheapest way to borrow that we know of. And we can apply that to mortgages where you, know, you can come to your wealth fund account and we'll tell you, Jim, you automatically qualify for a mortgage of $1.7 million. And you literally need no paperwork. Today, that takes six weeks. Well, because our average client links, uh, electronically links on the order of three and a half accounts to us, we can see how much money you have in all of your financial accounts. We don't need any paperwork to underwrite you. We can do it immediately. Well, it's interesting. I brought up PayPal earlier. If they know what my business inflow and outflow is, it's an easy decision for them. What's interesting is, as I said, my finan- my traditional financial institution, I'd have to go through the normal lending process, and I still may not get approved because right. they're going to use a traditional credit bureau as, say, as opposed to saying, oh, by the way, we know you got a going business, and we know exactly how much money you make. We know how much goes in, how much we know everything about it, but they don't, and that and that puts them at a disadvantage. So a couple quick questions to f- finish up. You know, we, we talk about the, the changes that are going on. Do you ever see uh, Wellfront seeking a banking license like Viral Bank? I, I think you may have already answered that going, why would I? <laughs> well, you know, the funny thing that we learned is that, uh, that bank regulators don't care about individuals at all. They just care about the stability of the financial system. And as a result, they want to take all risk they possibly can out of it. And what we learned through the process of evaluating a bank charter is that the regulators view growth as perhaps the greatest risk to a bank. Yeah. That's really odd to us. To us, growth is good. They've actually shut down some financial institutions' ability to grow right now. Right. And so if that's the case, then we don't want to be regulated. And the benefit of having a bank charter is you can make more money on your money. The downside is that the regulators will keep upping your capital requirements to slow your growth if you grow quickly because people-based banks can't handle growth, whereas software-based banks can, but the regulators don't have any experience with that. So we think that it's probably better to make a lower margin but to have the flexibility to try new things, uh, bank regulators expect you to give them a business plan from which you do not deviate. It's totally antithetical to the lean startup methodology. So I have no idea why Vero did what they did. It makes no sense to me. Makes business more difficult for sure. It really, really does. And last question, completely off this subject. Um, Tell us a little bit about the charity your wife and you are involved in on the cancer research. 
Oh, sure. Well, we partnered with a, a, an organization in New York named the Damon Runyon Cancer Research Foundation. Damon Runyon is unique in that they have always been focused on funding young investigators. Now, just like in tech, it is the young people who come up with the breakthroughs, not the senior people. Yet it's the senior people that everyone wants to fund in biomedical research. One of the big reasons why there's very little innovation in cancer uh, or very little accomplishment in cancer research is because almost all the money flows to older investigators who are doing incremental work. So we partnered with Damon Runyon to fund young investigators, so newly minted assistant professors at premier universities who are doing high risk, high reward research. And uh, one of the earliest recipients of funding from this program was, uh, was the fellow who invented the CRISPR, which has arguably had the biggest impact on biomedical research in the last 40 years, the ability to edit DNA. So we're really uh, excited about what has come out of this program and the impact that it's having on cancer, which for the first time, I think in a long, long time, people in the cancer research community feel like we're going to make tremendous progress in the next 10 years. Thank you very much, because I'm in Cleveland and with uh, the Cleveland Clinic and a number of other healthcare facilities that are very prominent in the whole cancer research area. It's, it's something that's very close to my heart and something that I've been dedicated to for years on children's cancer as well as adult cancer. But uh, thank you very much and thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Jim. This was a lot of fun. Great interview with Andy Ratchliffe from Wealthfront. I think what comes out of that, that is a real takeaway for the banking institutions, is the importance of innovation, the ability to, to not get it right maybe every time, but to fail fast. On top of that, the ability to really view who your customer base is and build for your future customer. Not building for the past customer, not building for customers that are not yours today. There's a big enough pie out there that any segment that you want to own, you can get a lot of customers from. And as he mentioned, uh, from the banking industry, remember you have a large number of consumers that are gonna leave your bank for no other reason than possibly dying. How have you backfilled that? What have you done to make it different? And what are you doing to be different than the bank down the street that's going under the same initiatives, the same priorities that you are? Thanks for listening to Banking Transformed. Ray is a top five banking podcast. I generally appreciate the support you have provided since we started this endeavor over a year ago. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app or through the financial brand. In addition, please take some time to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we're doing on digital transformation, the future of work in banking, retail banking innovation, and the changing dynamics of financial marketing for the Digital Banking Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. 
Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.